Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Good evening, good afternoon, good morning, wherever it is by you. Welcome back to the ballpark, and welcome back to Line Drive Radio. It is a Wednesday, March 23rd, and we got a new baseball season on tap, and we got a new season here at Line Drive Radio. Yours truly, Mr. Paul Cuthbert, holding down the board here on Long Island in New York, and it's time to bring back my LDR teammate from the great city of Chicago, Mr. Tab Bamford, Tab, welcome back, buddy. How are you? No, oh, it is so good to be back in baseball season. The, uh, the the middle one's already got three games under his belt with the old travel squad. And uh, and we can actually, you know, for those of us that are so inclined, can turn on MLB Network or a local feed and watch spring training baseball finally after what felt like the longest offseason in the history of professional sports. So... Really, really excited to be back thinking about talking about living baseball. Yep, and spring is in the air, and that uh, that little warm spring breeze is, is creeping in between the cold here as it's, uh, you know, we get ready for it, and it just makes it all all that much better here, especially here in the States. It seems like just everything's kind of right in the world now with uh, the boys of summer returning, and yeah. I'm well, it feels you, like man. opening day in Chicago today, Paul, because it's 48 and pouring. <laughs> I feel bad for you, man. It's just not that way. It's a little chilly here in New York today, but it was se- it was seventy two days ago. Sun is shining, man. <laughs> back back in the hoodies and the umbrellas. <laughs> Hashtag oh, March man. problems. There you go. But yeah, no, it's exciting. It's great. Um, yeah, MLB Network fired up pretty much on the TV around the clock here at the house, and just great to see. Uh, um, you know, all the GMs now and the coaches and the managers here and putting their lineups together. Obviously. Uh, uh, just a, a wave of signings once the CBA was resolved here. And I've talked to you about this, uh, not only in this show, but on other shows, the amount of money in Major League Baseball. And, and I, I know NFL has it too. All the sports have it. But I don't know. There's just, just something about the contracts in baseball that just, they're just, uh, is it me, Tab? Does it just seem like, you know, usually in the NFL, it's maybe one or two guys, your key positions that get it. And maybe you could somewhat say that in baseball, but man, it's just a ton of money that's given out, and it seems like some of the contracts are smaller now, and the and the payback is bigger. I don't know, but it's just fascinating to see how much money was released from the vault here these last couple of weeks. Yeah, uh, you know, and we'll dig into it on the show today, but uh, you know, baseball, like all professional sports, feels a lot like it is mirroring larger society without jumping on a political bandwagon, but. Your middle class is shrinking. 
You've got the superstars, the uber greats that are making a boatload of money. And you've got uh, the entry-level guys that are starting to get a little bit more here thanks to the new CBA. But you don't see a lot of those like eight or nine million dollar deals. You don't see the mid-tier guys getting three, four-year contracts right now. It's you go young at most of your positions and then you throw the bag at you know the superstars that are supposed to sell tickets and jerseys and get people to tune in on television and everything else. So and you know, we spent almost a hundred days in the lockout with owners crying poor. And since the lockout ended, uh, I think we can firmly stick the flag in the BS on that because the money has flowed. Uh, you know, we, when we spoke back on our hall of fame, special edition, celebrating big poppy, uh, talked about whether or not the lockout would help or hurt some of the guys that waited until after the lockout to sign, uh, guys like Chris Bryant, Freddie Freeman, Carlos Correa, kind of the, the headline names. And I think all three of them got about what we expected them to. Um, so here we are with, uh, you know, the, the two coasts really pushing all their chips in as they usually do in the Midwest being up for grabs. And some really fascinating player movement uh, with teams selling, buying, and kind of in the middle – trying to sort out how they're going to fill seats and get people to care. And uh, the dynamics in the division races are really fascinating now because some of that player movement has been head scratching. I mean, I've already got a solar panel on back, Paul. Um, <laughs> it's, if my waistline thinned as quickly as my hair, I'd be in much better shape and might be a marathon runner at this point. But uh, there have been some head scratchers, and we'll talk about that, uh, largely at the uh, expense of the team in Minnesota. Uh, and then there have been teams that you expected to push in that went for it that we expected to, but some surprising names and faces in different places. And that's what makes the offseason so exciting. And this one, I think, was more tumultuous already. And it, the dust has not settled. Let's be clear about that. I don't think we're done with some of these big moves. But uh, this was maybe the most tumultuous offseason we've seen uh, since the lockout back in the mid-'90s. Yeah, it's... Uh... It's fascinating. It's a lot to take in. Uh, I guess you have to be. I don't know when, when Tab when when they talk about the winners and the losers, whether it's the owners, whether it's the players. I mean, where, where do you land on that yourself? You know, covering the game for so many years here. I mean, you, you look at it from the player standpoint, and you go, "Wow, look at the look at the bank these guys are making." And, and you know, me and you, you know, debuting LDR here last year, and we were so excited about the talent pool just in the league and. And I know me and you and so many baseball diehards, are, it's, a, it's a breath of fresh air just that this season is, is done. I mean, it's set up. We're ready to go now. All the CBA stuff is, is finished. And we talked about all the talent last year and everything else. But now that the CBA – because the, the CBA was looming, you know, through the season and then the offseason after the World Series and everything. Now that it's over and done, does it, does it really matter anymore to the fans? I mean, are we going to see this at the ballparks now, ticket prices – you know, concession stands, everything else, jerseys, all that stuff we can just imagine that's going to go up. But, you know, getting back to my simple question, who won this? Does it matter? Wonderful question. Uh, and my approach has always been, uh, whether it's an offseason or a trade deadline, which we just had earlier this week in the National Hockey League, uh, the immediate answer is one team won the offseason. 
because only one team can lift the hardware in now November. And, um, but that being said, I think that there are teams that have positioned themselves for more than one year of potential. And so I think you have an ultimate winner and then you have second tier winners, teams whose windows have either been extended or whose windows are a little bit more open now than they were before. And then you have teams that I think also won, but the, the winning won't necessarily pay off until maybe two to five years down the road. Um, whenever you have big trades happen in any sport that involve either prospects or draft picks, uh, you won't know who, the, who won the day until you get five years down the road and you see what those prospects amount to. Um, and so... There are some teams that starting at the deadline last year, you know, we talked about the Cubs selling. We talked about some of the stuff that the Twins did, and we're going to spend some time again on them, you know, scratching our increasingly bald spots. Um, and, um, and then you've got teams that go for it. And last year, the team that went for it that we didn't talk about a lot at the deadline, and frankly, we wondered what exactly they were doing because it didn't look like a team that had the right pieces or the horses to go get it, the Atlanta Braves. Now we can firmly say that the Atlanta Braves won the deadline because they went and got Rosario, who was the NLCS MVP. They went and got Soler, who was the World Series MVP, and they won the World Series. So all the teams that did all the sexy moves, the Yankees bringing in Gallo and Rizzo, most people thought they needed left-handed bats. They get two boppers. They won the deadline. Well, they didn't get to the dance. Mm-hmm. and they. So you could argue... Now Rizzo and Gallo are still there, and the Yankees are still working on filling things out. But the, at the end of the day, the team that won the deadline last year was the Atlanta Braves. And so who won the offseason? Ask me in November when somebody's kissing a trophy and throwing champagne and Budweiser on each other. But I think that there are tiers to who won. The teams that lost are the teams that are looking at short-term assets and shorter-term contracts that don't win the World Series teams that are renting guys, teams that are bringing guys in, and the moves backfire. They don't get what they want. Uh, And you see that every year. There are teams that miscalculate who's going to fix the perceived needs. Uh, And, you know, there are other moves that, uh, that, you know, might win you short-term and lose you long-term. And I think the the poster child for that is the Jason Hayward deal with the Cubs. He gave a great motivational speech in Game 7 of the World Series during a 12-minute rain delay when the good Lord finally... Smiled on the Chicago Cubs, but that contract, uh, some have argued, has cost the Cubs uh, the ability to re-sign Javier Baez, Anthony Rizzo, and Chris Bryant. Uh, made them you know, a little trigger shy to sign <clears throat> other guys to longer-term deals with big money attached. So the Cubs are now in a rebuild, and they're you know, obviously going to be an interesting team this year, but the prospects that they brought in are a couple years away, so... Whether or not the Cubs won the deadline last year, we might not know until 25 or 26. Uh, But there's a method to their madness. And I think you want a method to the madness when you see teams start trading either for or against people. And that's what makes it so interesting when you start talking winners or losers because you want to at least rationalize what they're doing. And uh, for some teams, it's a lot easier to rationalize than others. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And it'll also be interesting to see how the turnouts are this year, you know, um, I think that's something to look forward to as well here. I mean, you know, 
with the, with the country here somewhat getting quote unquote back to normal here coming out of uh, the pandemic here last year, uh, Omicron here through the the late uh, end of the year here and the beginning of this year. Um, you know, you see the other sports kind of, you know, football was kind of leading the way. Um, basketball and hockey, their seasons have been full effect. They've, they've kind of come through that. Now we got to get a clean slate here with the MLB and with the CBA and the signings and stuff. And, and you wonder how this is going to affect, um, you know, certain fan bases and, and how they build here. And it's so much to look forward to here. And we'll, we'll, we'll cover it, as, you know, week to week as we go forward. There's just way too much for us to kind of dive into today. But, you know, we'll get into predictions and, and, and all that other good stuff here, uh, you know, leading up to uh, opening day here in a couple of weeks. Um, the last thing before we start diving into to some of the big moves that, that, that started here uh, this past two weeks um, is, the, is the difference. I, I saw, I can't, I, I was looking for his tweet here, but I couldn't find it. Uh, and just back on the numbers here in terms of the money as well. And, you know, all the, all the big teams, you know, like the Mets and the Yankees and the Red Sox who spend all this, you know, huge money, LA Dodgers and everything else. Uh, he just pointed out uh, three teams uh, at the bottom. I think uh, $30 million, I think, was their, their payroll compared to, like, you know, where the rest of the, uh, the upper tiers are. Uh, but the, uh, the Guardians, our new favorite baseball name, right? Uh, the Pirates and the Orioles, those are the bottom three, right? As far as mm-hmm. the money that those teams have. I mean, just talk about the, the bottom here of the league. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but they've, they've kind of been on the bottom for a long time. So when, when does that swing for them, Tab, as far as the bottom tier teams, or, or is that ever going to happen here? As long as there isn't a salary floor and you're not forcing teams to spend money that they don't necessarily have, no one's going to spend. And the only sport that has a salary floor is the National Hockey League. And while it has created some levels of parity in the game, um, you can't force people to spend money the right way. And so you can have the highest payroll in the league, like the Toronto Maple Leafs, and not have the right mix to win a championship. And what's interesting in baseball is that, you know, for – a number of years with the Wilpons owning the Mets, they kind of meddled around in the kind of sort of spending money, but never really went for it. Steve Cohen bought the team, immediately goes and gets Francisco Lindor and gives him the bag. And now he's out there, you know, throwing money at Max Scherzer and making deals. And there's a level of a fourth tier of luxury tax implications that has lovingly been nicknamed the Steve Cohen tier because there are teams like the Mets and the Dodgers that don't care about your luxury tax. They're going to spend because they want to win. Um, and I think that they should, honor, in, memor, or in memory of uh, Mr. George Steinbrenner, uh, name that uh, the Costanza tier uh, instead, of the, uh, <laughs> instead of the Cohen tier. But no, you know, and what's fascinating is that in baseball, because it's such an interesting game and teams develop and, and, pay guys at different tiers you look at those three teams and the pirates are trying to build something we've kind of laughed at them for a year now and it's easy to laugh at the pirates but o'neill cruz is your front runner in vegas for the national league rookie of the year and he's hitting absolute tanks cabrian hayes is legit the pirates are trying to build something again and they've got young pieces that are coming in on rookie deals that aren't very expensive baltimore is kind of in the same deal where you know, Adley Rushman, who a lot of people think is going to be a culture changer for them, uh, though he's sidelined to start the season with a little bit of an arm problem. Um, you know, Grayson Rodriguez, they got two of the top 10 prospects in most people's estimations in baseball. So you got two teams that have got young guys that are coming in that are going to make an impact that will eventually get paid. And you hope 
I think as fans of those teams that they get paid to stay with those teams. Guardians are a different story, right? They're in the World Series six now six years ago in 2016. Lindor's left, but they still have A1 pitching staff. They've still got Jose Ramirez on a massively team-friendly deal. Whether or not he finishes this year in Cleveland will be an interesting thing to keep an eye on. But they've got some interesting pieces, and they have always, going back to the Manny Ramirez, Jim Tomey, Big Sexy, Richie Sex, and Bartolo Colon days, the Giles days, they have always turned out massive teams every four to six years and had a window and then burned it down and started over. That's been the MO in Cleveland for years. And the fact that they bottomed out just says that they're trying to get some internal guys to step up. They're not going to spend big money on a, on a maybe because they don't have those kinds of resources. But I think that Cleveland is in a much different position than the other two in that they could make life interesting in the American League Central and the other two are certainly looking longer term and trying to build for a future that might not start until maybe 24. Well, it's just a lot to look at. It's uh, just an interesting part of the game. And um, you, you pull for those cities a little bit. You know, we make fun every now and again. And I just, I think that's just the result of just the constant, I guess, the losing, you could say. But um, it, again, that's that's for another time to, to get into in terms of how, uh, you know, certain franchises who don't spend and aren't spending or either can't spend, um, you know, how they can eventually kind of turn the uh, the ship around. But anyway, let's get out of the uh, the bullpen and let's start getting on deck here. And it's going to fire into three of our main subjects here on Long Drive Radio today. And that's a couple of big things that happened, which primarily have affected the Eastern divisions uh, in both leagues. And we're going to start with uh, the Oakland Fire Sale, as Tab would like to call it. We'll start there in terms of what these guys did here in the last couple of weeks and how that kind of changed the makeup here for the um, the Eastern Divisions here in both the National and the American Leagues. Tab, where do you want to start here? Obviously, some of the big moves. I'm going to just toss it to you in terms of where you want to go with, and then we'll talk about the implications that these moves uh, will or have made already made on, um, on the Eastern Divisions here in the National and the American League. Yeah, I mean... And really, the three big points that we're going to talk about today all kind of tie together. And I think a lot of us thought when we started talking offseason back at the end of the World Series, Paul, that, you know, Oakland, the A's have an interesting situation to watch right now because they're still fighting with the local government about getting a, a stadium situation figured out. They've been flirting with moving. You know, people in their baseball ops have been down to Vegas looking at sites where they could potentially build a new ballpark, you know, go full Raiders and just bail on Oakland and go to Vegas. Um, and like I, I just described the now Cleveland Guardians, the Oakland A's have been a team. And I think lots of people listening have seen the movie Moneyball, read the book Moneyball. It's not a surprise now that they are a team that many people credit for revolutionizing the science of spend and the science of scouting and what they value and how they value it and how they're going to spend the limited resources that they have. And Oakland's been a very good team for a number of years. They've got, they had some of the more exciting guys to watch and some really, really good players, but they got to a point now where they realized that the clock was ticking on when these guys were going to need contracts. And as they have done throughout the years, uh, they decided that they were going to move on from guys instead of paying them the big money. And they've made three deals that, again, 
directly put big arrows all over the east coast of the United States and the Eastern Division if we want to include Canada. And it's fascinating to see how the dominoes have affected really everything and how Oakland kind of, once the lockout ended, became kind of the fulcrum point for everything in baseball. So the first trade that they made was sending uh, starting pitcher Chris Bassett to the Mets. Uh, Bassett was an all-star last year. He was, I think most people considered the ace of the A's staff, was having a marvelous season, got hit in the face by a line drive playing the White Sox, incredibly scary situation, was able to come back towards the end of the year. Um, but he is a, a, and I would say 20 teams, he would be the number one starter. He'd be your opening day guy. He goes to the Mets, who again, you know, backpedaling here, brought in Max Scherzer on a massive short-term deal, signed Starling Marte, who was in Oakland, you know, led, I think, Major League Baseball in stolen bases last year, brought in Eduardo Escobar. The Mets are going for it. They're, all of their chips are in the middle of the table right now. And Steve Cohn hopes that, you know, he's not holding a 2-7 uh, off suit, but he's all the chips are in and Bassett as a number three starter. I submit gives the Mets the strongest and deepest rotation in the national league. Uh, when you've got Scherzer and theoretically a healthy Jacob deGrom who struck out five and two innings in his spring training debut yesterday, Scherzer went five innings and dominated on Monday. So we've already seen their two big horses. You know, those three guys would be aces anywhere in baseball. You know, you might argue that maybe the Dodgers, uh, you know, one of those guys might be a number two out there. You know, they bring Kershaw back and they've still got Walker Bueller and Julio Urias. Uh, you look at the rotation that won the World Series in Atlanta. But I'm going to, you know, stick my two cents in and say that those three at the top of the Mets rotation give them the, t- the best top three in baseball. And, you know, they bring back a couple pitching prospects who – you know, I think TJ Ginn, probably the, the biggest name in that deal, who are going to help them longer term. Uh, but, you know, it, it's interesting that when you look again at the, at the context of some of the trades that are made, one of the young arms that a lot of people really liked in Oakland, Jesus Lazardo, was traded to Miami to get Starling Marte to go for it last year. And now Marte's with the Mets. So they rented him for half of a season for one of their top pitching young pitchers. And... It didn't work, and so again, when we talk about winners or losers, they went for it, it didn't work, and now they're burning the thing down. Lazardo looks like he's going to be a rotation piece for the Marlins, and Bassett's pitching against the Marlins for the Mets. So very interesting to see how that deal went. And when you look at how other teams have looked at what the Mets are doing from a pitching perspective, the trickle-down then became the Phillies go out and feel like they need to compete offensively, so they signed both Kyle Schwarber and Nick Castellanos, which gives them two massive bats around reigning MVP Bryce Harper. Uh, Schwarber with a left-handed bomb stick is going to give them a different dynamic. JT Romuto being healthy gives them one of the deeper lineups in the National League. So the Phillies need to be excited. And the World Series MVP Jorge Soler goes to Miami on a a three-year deal. So you see teams that are loading up with the bats to try and counter what they're going to do on the mound with the Mets. Very interesting. One of the other teams that had some dynamics that they needed to figure out, uh, and I think the team that most people look at is they swung maybe the biggest gamble in baseball this entire offseason, and we're going to have to sit back and wait for six months to see if it works. But the Atlanta Braves had been talking with the face of their franchise, Freddie Freeman, about a long-term extension for a while. 
Um, obviously, they, they had a little bit of a break there for 100 days during the lockout, but when the lockout ended, they realized that the musical chairs were going, the music was playing, and they, didn't, they were not comfortable with the music ending, knowing what Oakland was doing from a fire sale perspective, that Freeman was going to come back and that they were going to get a deal done. And so they preemptively made the decision to move on from the face of the franchise, a guy who with, I would submit, Chipper Jones and Dale Murphy is on the Mount Rushmore for batters in the great city of Atlanta uh, with, of course, uh, Hammer and Hank Aaron. Uh, but Freddie Freeman, they said thanks, uh, but no thanks. And they didn't actually call Freddie and tell him that. Huh. They made a trade with Oakland to bring in Matt Olson, and they gave up a pretty penny for that. Christian Pache uh, was the headliner in that deal, a, a phenomenal defensive center fielder. I've talked to Andrew Jones about Pache. He told me a couple years ago he thought Pache was a better instinctive center fielder than he was, and many people and a lot of the analysts that dig into the numbers would tell you Andrew Jones is the greatest center fielder since defensively since Willie Mays. The eye test tells you maybe Ken Griffey Jr. would have a conversation about that, but Andrew Jones thinks that this kid's the deal. Now the bat tool needs to catch up. They also moved Shea Langliers, who's one of the top catching prospects in baseball in that. But they Oakland got a haul for a first baseman who the average and the on-base aren't going to be what Freeman did, but there's plenty of pop there. He's got a 40-homer bat. He is one of, if not the best defensive first baseman in all of baseball. And he goes down there, and before they even introduce him, they announce that he's getting an eight-year big-money extension. So Matt Olson, who grew up 20 minutes from the ballpark that the Braves play, and I was going to say Atlanta, but they don't play in Atlanta anymore. Welcome to the suburbs. Whole <laughs> um, other soapbox. Uh, but Matt Olson is now the first baseman of the future in Atlanta, and that is a huge gamble for Atlanta. You know, you talk about our fans going to show up. There are a lot of fans that didn't react kindly to the idea that Freddie Freeman was going to be gone and how that played out. Um, you know, I'm not a fan of the whole burning the jersey thing. Like, seriously, finish puberty, get over yourself. Like adults, you don't need to throw lighter fluid on a jersey because a dude got paid somewhere else. But Matt Olson is a really, really good first baseman. And I think Braves fans are going to love him. And he's four years younger than Freeman. So the eight-year deal that he got is going to take him to what would have amounted to a four-year deal for Freeman age-wise. Uh, he's going to be there for the long term. He's a local guy who is, re again, a really good first baseman. But that changes a lot of stuff for the Braves. And, you know, we're hearing now, you know, you look at Solaire is gone. You look at Freeman's gone. How are the Braves going to rebound and how are they going to do this? Well, they got a, a, a really nice team-friendly deal done with Rosario to come back. Good left-handed bat back in left field who obviously played incredibly well in the clutch for them last year. And Ronald Acuna Jr. is coming back. Now, it sounds like to start the regular season, his outfield ex exposure is going to be relatively limited coming back from the injury last year. But this is a dude who was like DeGrom running away with, you know, probably every individual award you can think of until the injury happened. And the difference is when DeGrom got hurt, the Mets fell apart completely. When Acuna got hurt, the Braves pivoted and won the World Series. And now they're bringing back one of the most exciting players in baseball to a lineup that will not have Freddie Freeman, but it will have Matt Olson and it will have Rosario and it will have Austin Riley and Ozzie Albies and Dansby Swanson. And so the Braves still line up as one of the most formidable teams out there. And I think even with the loss of Freeman, even with the loss of Soler, 
who can look at the Braves and sincerely say that if you want to be the champ, you got to beat the champ, and the Braves are positioned to be as good a bet as any to win the World Series this year. So, again, you look at the, the National League East here and kind of wrapping it from an Oakland fire sale perspective. Oakland traded their ace and their all-star gold glove, platinum glove first baseman to the Mets and Braves. And the trickle down led to the Phillies spending big money on a couple bats. The Marlins bringing in Soler. And you have realistically right now four plus teams. And I'm not ignoring the Marlins by any stretch because I think their pitching is dynamite. I love their pitching. And they've got young bats that are coming. Jazz Chisholm was marvelous last year. I think Soler being a big Cuban who hits missiles is going to really be a, a guy that they're going to love watching in Miami. But that division, I mean, good luck, you know, winning that division. And the fascinating question now is with a 12 team playoff, thanks to the new CBA and six teams getting in, how many teams out of the East get in last year? We joked that nobody in the East deserved it. We called it the national league least. Well, now it, it looks like a heavyweight, right? It now you've got four teams that you could very easily argue would win the National League Central and would give a Dodgers all they could handle to win the National League West. But they're going to have to play each other a lot this year. And so by playing a lot, are they going to beat each other up? And with March Madness happening and everybody blasting the Big Ten for getting nine teams in and then falling on the sword again in the first couple rounds, are they like the Big Ten basketball of Major League Baseball? Are they going to beat each other up? and maybe only get one or two teams in because they beat each other up so much because the pitching in that division is phenomenal. The lineups are as deep as anybody in baseball, but they got to play each other and only one team can win those games. You can so kind of like uh, you can, sorry, Tave, you can kind of look at the, um, you know, the Dodgers and the Padres last year during the regular season. And, you mm -hmm. know, in terms of how that ended up at the end of the year with the Padres falling short, kind yeah. of a similar comparison. Well, and the question is, you know, is there a San Francisco Giants this year in the National League? Who's going to be the team that jumps out and surprises everybody and, oh, look at us. Um, like, everybody thought that we were going to be, a, you know, a, a team that was fighting for 75 wins and we're in the playoffs making life miserable for people. But that's where weaker division, a, a bottom-heavy division opens the door for a team that's interesting to make a lot of noise and maybe sneak in the back door with the extra playoff spot now because the National League East is going to beat each other up. There's no question right now today that if I'm putting six teams in the playoffs in the National League, four of them are coming from the National League East just based on pure power and, and depth and the complete package for the six best teams. And for my money in the National League are in the East. And then I think the Cardinals and Dodgers have an argument. But – they've got to play each other a lot. And well, again, one team can win those games. And so who's going to be able to reign supreme and is anybody going to completely fall apart at the seams and backfire? Or are you going to see teams that, that are going to go out and just beat the hell out of every other team that they play outside of the division. And you'll actually end up with three or four teams getting in. So it's going to be fascinating to watch the East tip on that point there real quick, just in terms of that conversation, right? And I'll just I'll just bring in um, our little league uh, meetings there uh, about a week or two ago, and we were talking about how uh, we we should approach coaching and training the kids because baseball is a slow sport, 
you know, how you run your practices and, and don't worry about the, the scores in the games right now. Just make sure the kids have much fun, keep things moving because the game, uh, you know, obviously is a slow game <clears throat> and that you can lose players. And I think uh, maybe little leagues around the country have, have noticed that they lose a lot of players to playing other sports, whether it's hockey, basketball, or football, uh, because the game, like I said, can be viewed as uh, by kids as too slow of a game. Now, you take that to, you know, bringing up what I just brought up there. I know, like I said, the expanded playoffs and all these moves, and I'm going to just bring up that San Diego Dodgers rivalry last year, okay? I was up for that all season long last year where I wanted to watch it, wanted to put it on the TV, wanted to see what was happening because of the talent, because of the two teams and the rivalries. You look at the moves that made here and stuff, and you're talking about the you know the thought of these teams beating each other up during the re- regular season. To me, right there, I I'm I, this is just my opinion. I think the league wins here if they can have an exciting regular season with all these teams, these very talented teams, beating the crap out of each other during the year. Because I think the full body of the regular season, beyond the diehards. Beyond the, 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 the fans that just kind of stay in their lane for their particular team, whether you're Yankees fans, you're just watching the Yankees. Whether you're Braves fans, you're just watching the Braves. But I think nationally, to, to gain some excitement for the league, if, if, if ESPN and local networks are talking about these wild games, maybe we get a couple of bench clearers, all this stuff, and we see that kind of passion, and we see these big egos, these big money players, and they got to earn it during the regular season. I think that might bode well for just baseball in itself in terms of looking at as it from a bringing more fans back to the game. That's just my angle on it. I know what you're talking about strategically and, and financially how this is going to affect certain uh, ball teams as the, the season goes on and then where we end up at the playoffs. And swinging back around the Olsen thing with him in Atlanta and everything else, I mean, when you look at the, especially the expansion of the playoff system there, it's almost like that, that hockey thing now, right? You just got to get in, right? So if you get any of these lineups in now, I think it's just a, maybe a, even that one extra team getting in now, it makes it a little different. And I think managers are going to have to coach differently too as well in terms, terms of the second half of the year, in terms of their arms, their pitchers, and everything else and what they're going to have ready. Because now it's like, hey, wherever you sit in the, in the standings, you know, come July and August, looking towards the fall, that's going to be something really interesting to to kind of look at. And I think maybe that's the good thing that I look at in terms of, number one, the expanded playoffs situation. We've, we've talked about it, how, how great it's been in the NHL with the extra wild card and all that other stuff. So I think it's great for the, uh, the health of the, uh, the regular season, getting more fans involved. Um, I love the rivalries. Get these players beating the crap out of, like you were saying, and I think ultimately down the road um, it'll be great to watch how managers and GMs, when we get to the trading deadline here in MLB, it's, it's going to be a different kind of look now because the league is a different kind of look. Yeah, well, and that, again, you, you add a, the, the theory behind the expanded playoffs was two things. One, uh, as we talked about at times last year, the owners and the commissioner's office negotiated a deal with ESPN, in, in my estimation, in bad faith, that guaranteed ESPN – uh, TV rights to any expanded playoffs without asking the playoff, the players first. And so that's why the owners were pushing for a 14 or 12 team playoff because a 12 team playoff gets the owners 85 extra million dollars from ESPN. Had it gone to 14 teams, which I think universally players fans alike thought was too much. 
Um, because look, hockey's played with a roof over your head. So if you're playing into the spring and the summer, it's okay. But in baseball, if you've got teams in New York uh, and Minnesota and Detroit and Chicago, you know, playing in November with no roof over their head, that's problematic. Okay, you can't play baseball if it's snowing, at least well. And you want to see the best teams playing in conditions that are conducive to baseball. And we don't want to be crowning a World Series champion on Black Friday after watching the NFL on Thanksgiving. (laughs) So. 12 teams, I'm cool with it, and the, but the bigger theory behind it, other than the money, was that it's going to incent teams to not tank, that you're going to have an, two spots that are open now for additional teams to, to really go for it, and that's what makes it interesting with the other divisions that are you know maybe one team deep or two teams deep. When you look at the Central and the West in the National League, is if you're the Padres or the Giants or you know whatever the hell the Rockies are doing, giving Chris Bryant money, um, That's a good or in the Central, if you're the Milwaukee Brewers, who no one is you know is backing away from, or even you know look the Chicago Cubs brought in Marcus Stroman and Andrelton Simmons, if you're close, you're beating up the bad teams in your division, and your division is a hell of a lot softer than what the East is, and you're close theoretically, this is going to incent those teams to maybe go for it and see if you can get in. Because just getting in has always been a thing. Theo Epstein said, you know, even when the Cubs won the World Series for the first time in, you know, 800 years, all you have to do is get in and then you got a fighter's chance. And then it's about lining up your rotation and having the depth and being able to have the moving pieces that work in a dead sprint to win four games faster than your opponent does in a seven-game series. And in some cases, it's going to be three out of five. But you're you're going to have to get in to be able to make those maneuvers. And theoretically, having six teams in each league getting into the playoffs opens the door for more teams when you get to the trade deadline that be at least interesting enough and be able to buy what they're doing to go for it. And, you know, it's interesting when you look back at last year with where a team like the Cubs were at, would the Cubs have sold as hard as they did? at the deadline if there was a, a, a sixth team getting in the playoffs. Yeah, good question. Because they would have been positioned at that point in the year to possibly be like, okay, you know what, we've actually got a chance. We're going to ride or die with what we've got, and we'll figure out the free agency in the offseason, but let's see if we can go get another Especially arm. Especially when or, you think of the guys, the, you know, the names. Yeah. You know, Rizzo, no. Baez. And what they meant to the, the club and the fan base with what they did on the World Series run. So now that becomes even more interesting, and you're going to see more teams potentially augmenting their teams to go for it than totally backing off. And that also opens the door for teams that maybe have some of those pieces that would be intriguing, like the Royals, um, like maybe Pittsburgh, um, that are building for something that maybe starts in a year or two or three or 12 for Pittsburgh or ever. Um <laughs> But if you've got some intriguing pieces there, you can maybe accelerate that turnaround because teams are going to be willing to pay more to go for it. And you're right. You look at the National Hockey League. We had the deadline earlier this week, and it wasn't two teams that were pushing their chips in. You saw five or six teams going for it. And there are other teams that are going to benefit long term from the draft picks and the prospects that they got in those trades because so many teams get in. And if you get in, you got a chance. And so baseball is looking at, this is going to help parity because you're going to see more teams mortgaging the long term for the short term and the teams that want to build for the long term 
be able to accelerate that rebuild by moving some of the pieces that aren't doing it for them now. So, yeah, I mean, from a National League perspective, I love it. Um, and it, the same is true in the American League. And, you know, circling back to Oakland, they only made those two trades in the National League East. Then they changed the dynamic of the American League East, and they traded Matt Chapman, who had, a, you know, hip surgery, which limited him in 20, affected him at the plate last year. He's back fully healthy. He went to Toronto again for a pretty penny. And Matt Chapman got a nice little extension out of the Blue Jays. It wasn't eight years, but the boy still got himself some bread. And the Blue Jays were rumored to be interested in Freddie Freeman, um, which would have moved Vladdy Jr. back over to third base. I think they made the right decision, leave Vladdy at first. They bring in Chapman, again, platinum glove winning third baseman who can hit tanks. Uh, you know, the interesting thing there is how does the hit play on the turf for all of his home games? Uh, but at the end of the day, the Blue Jays lineup is as deep and as good as anybody in the American League, maybe the deepest lineup in all of baseball with the addition of Chapman, who again has, you know, you look back just to 2018, he's a 40-double, 25-homer guy. And that's in a cavernous ballpark in Oakland where playing in Toronto, he might be a 35-homer guy. Um, and with that lineup, he's certainly going to see plenty of pitches to hit. And so Oakland then moving Matt Chapman to the Blue Jays started a whole other series of dominoes. Uh, you saw the Red Sox go out and bring in Trevor Story. You saw the Yankees make a fascinating trade uh, to bring in Josh Donaldson uh, and Isaiah Kiner-Falefa, which we'll talk about in a minute when we scratch our heads about what Minnesota's doing exactly. Um, but you saw what, what the Toronto Blue Jays have done. They lost Robbie Ray, but they bring in Kevin Gossman. Last year they traded for Barrios. Their rotation is really good. Their bullpen is solid. Um, and they're, again, they've got more bats than I would argue anybody in the American League East. And so now we're talking about Toronto maybe being the team to beat in the American League East, not the Red Sox, not the Rays, who, by the way, were in the World Series uh, and have been really good for the last three to five years. And again, burn it down and live on a cheap payroll, but somehow find guys that just turn into all-stars overnight. And Wander Franco is going to be a an MVP caliber guy, I think, for them this year. But just like the National League East, uh, you're going to have four teams in the American League East that could make a case for the playoffs. But I think the American League has some more interesting pieces in other divisions that will make the wild card race maybe a little bit tighter for your third and fourth place teams in the American League East. And that's what made this offseason so fascinating for them because I love everything that Toronto did. Um, I think the Yankees have left the door open for a lot of questions with Anthony Rizzo uh, being their biggest free agent ad and then bringing in Donaldson and Kiner Falefa to fix the left side of their infield. Um, and now going to arbitration, it appears that they're in judge. We'll see how that works for them in the short and long term. But, um, but again, Oakland kind of st pushing that first domino and being the fulcrum for all of the movement, you know, that Chapman trade really pushed other teams feel like they needed to respond and how they responded, you know, leads to all sorts of other questions about how the dynamics work. Um, but Oakland's fire sale. And I, look, I don't think they're done. Sean Manea's still name is still out there. He'd be a great help to a lot of pitching staffs. Um, you look at Ramon Laureano who got pinched for PEDs last year. 
great defensive center fielder with a little bit of a bat to help. You know, he's a player that could be moved pretty easily who could help other teams as well. So, but those three big deals, you traded your ace and your two corner infielders who most people thought that the two mats were going to be the future of the, of the A's. And they got them into the playoffs a couple times, but it didn't work. And so here we are with Oakland hitting the reset button and resetting really hard. Uh, and they got a really good haul. They got a lot of pitching in those three trades, which is interesting that they're building around pitching when you, if you've read or watched Moneyball, most of the emphasis there was on the bats. Um, but o- Oakland hit the reset. They're going to take a step back this year in, uh, in American League West. That is a, another interesting division that will break down on a future episode of Line Drive Radio. But their, their three big trades really changed the landscape of the other side of the country. Uh, and we'll include Canada in that. You're welcome, Toronto. Uh, but the Eastern divisions were massively changed by what Oakland did to help three teams that you figure to be there in September and October and potentially November with the Mets, Braves, and Blue Jays swinging big trades to bring in a starter, a first baseman, and a third baseman, respectively. Yeah, and it, it, it forced uh, Philadelphia to to make moves, too. I, I love... You know, and it, it is so funny last year how we um, talked about the National League uh, East there. And, you know, we were making fun of them. It seemed like, no, you know, nobody wanted to win. And there was no way we thought the Braves were going to win the World Series. Um, but, I, you know, I'm, I got to get more familiar with uh, the Phillies' arms. But, you know, and you know me, Yankee guy, Joe Girardi. But getting Kyle Schwarber in there and Kesselanos and, and Harper. I mean, not only are they just three phenomenal baseball players, but they're three they're great personalities. I think they're great, um, just great players. Schwarber's uh, press conference was great the other day, and I think that's going to be great. And I think this is going to be exciting. I can't wait for Phillies Mets games. They've always been a big yeah. rivalry, and that's just going to be super stuff. And just real quick, as far as um, the Yankees there too with Falifa, you know, he he led the league last year in singles. Uh, I think he had 136 singles, and he um, he played 158 games. And as far as defensively, he had 436 assists and 98 double plays. So to me, Felipe, to me, the quiet thing there is his, his single hitting, which has always been a big thing that the Yankees need around their big bats. And if that guy plays a full season, a healthy guy like that, he's going to be good defensively because he's, he's already shown he can do that. But if that guy can poke some line drives, no pun intended, out for the Yankees on a regular basis – uh, I think that's a quiet sleeper, huge deal for the Yankees and this lineup, which is something that they need. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, look, I, I thought the the trade that sent him to Minnesota, I love that trade for Minnesota. And then they traded him, and we're going to you know bomb Minnesota here in a minute. But um, you're right. I think the, the problem that the Yankees have had over the last few years is not Aaron Boone necessarily, but it's that his lineup is dependent on the long ball. And if you're hitting solo shots – you're getting one run at a time. And when you've got a lot of strikeouts surrounding uh, those home runs, it's hard to win games hoping that you get four or five jacks, right? And so having a guy that can get on base, I think Major League Baseball is now with you know the talk of banning the shift or limiting how much guys can shift. I think contact is about to make a massive comeback. And you see guys like, IKF with the Yankees, Nick Madrigal now with the Cubs, that are singles machines, table setters, that either going to hit first or ninth in your lineup and provide 
the opportunity for multi-run homers. And I think that he's a he's a huge add. And I think the other trickle-up effect for the Yankees is that moves Glaber Torres back to second base. I would I would comfortably say that IKF is a better defensive shortstop than Glaber Torres has been since the surgery. Glaber had played his best baseball as a second baseman. Moving him back there, I think, is going to help him. Uh, the Yankees obviously have decisions to make about him long-term financially at some point, but I think moving him over, getting Rizzo back at first base, having a premium defensive first baseman. Donaldson's a nice defensive third baseman. I don't think he's as good as Ursula was um, or is for that matter, but a bigger bat. Again, maybe more of a doubles guy at this stage in his career than a home run guy, but defensively IKF and Donaldson are going to make the left side of the Yankees infield better and moving Glaber to second base, not ideal, but it's better move for him. And then you've got nowhere really established or defined that you're going to play DJ LeMahieu every single day. And he's obviously a valuable bat who is still a guy who I think is going to be able to be in that conversation for potential batting title type guy, not a 40 Homer guy, but a contact guy. And it sounds like he's going to get in the lineup somehow every, every day pretty much, but rotating between giving Rizzo a day at first, giving Glaber a day at second, giving Donaldson a day at third, he can play everywhere. He's going to make good contact. So you've now got a little bit better depth, and you're better defensively if you're the Yankees. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think IKF is going to be a, a great add for them. Um, and I think that adding Donaldson and IKF was a necessary deal. And I, what was interesting is that the Yankees didn't swing big to solve their third base problem. They didn't make the trade for Chapman, right? They didn't go sign Chris Bryant to play third base. Uh, there were opportunities for them to go big. They flirted with Freddie Freeman at first base. They ultimately didn't go that direction. They brought Rizzo back. They got rid of Luke Voigt because they've got the other depth in the lineup. Voigt goes to San Diego in a deal and looks like he's pretty much going to be the DH for the Padres, giving them a guy who we forget so quickly led Major League Baseball in home runs during the pandemic short in 2020 season. Mm-hmm. A lot of pop there. So, you, you, now you've got a team that's going to make more contact. The question is, does the mix work? And uh, without diving headlong too much into the Yankees, because we're going to spend a lot of time on them in coming shows, but the, the part of that deal, that I, while I love the fit of kind of flip at, at shortstop, I do scratch my head a little bit about the clubhouse dynamics, because if you remember last year when Major League Baseball banned the sticky stuff, Donaldson called out Garrett Cole and said, oh, look, suddenly the unhittable ace of the Yankees is hittable. Oh, look, you know, the spin rate's down. What could that be from eye roll? And you almost had a couple fisticuffs moments between the Twins and Yankees, who, by the way, reminder, the Yankees have knocked the Twins out, what, 37 straight years in the playoffs. (laughs) Um, So the fact that those two teams got together in a deal was fascinating in the first place, but then Donaldson and Cole – and the way that neither one of them really answered the question about are we cool now uh, when they introduced Donaldson and Garrett Cole had his first press conference. Did they have a conversation? Yes. How did that conversation go? Uh, you know, you, you kind of grit your teeth a little bit, and, and we'll see if it works. Because at the end of the day, these are two guys that are big-time competitors and want to win, and you think that the personal dynamics, maybe they don't get along, you put them aside. I don't think the Donaldson-Garrett-Cole rivalry is as deep and as burning hate-filled as if the Yankees had decided to bring Trevor Bauer in, uh, since Bauer oh. and Cole, you know, just 
throwing at you know embers at each other and lighting each other on fire kind of a deal but it, it, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out and if there is a tough spot in the season and if they do hit the skids you know Donaldson's a guy who's been you know abrasive at times uh, you know whether it was in Minnesota or Toronto or Oakland multiple MVPs in his in his rearview mirror uh, you know he won a couple MVPs for the Blue Jays as a third baseman after being traded there by Oakland for those that want to play some kind of a narrative forward on the Chapman to Toronto deal. But I'm, I'm going to keep my eye on that because Donaldson and Cole obviously didn't get along last year. Now they're teammates. How does that play? Um, but I, uh, on paper, I do like uh, the IKF and Donaldson additions for the Yankees and it helped them solve the Gary Sanchez problem. Uh, now they don't have a really a, a bat to speak of. I, I think gosh, is a really good catcher, but again, a contact guy, uh, but I think the Gary Sanchez situation had reached a breaking point with the organization and the fans and a new look behind the plate permanently without having that elephant in the room to talk about what are we doing with Gary Sanchez, who was who left a lot to be desired defensively. And when he wasn't hitting left, a lot to be desired completely after starting his career so incredibly well. Uh, he gets a fresh start in Minnesota. And the Yankees don't have to answer the question about what are we doing with Gary Sanchez anymore. But it was interesting, the two teams that have had kind of a postseason rivalry, and it's really been one-sided, that they would make a deal of that magnitude with each other to make it happen. Headlines, baby. It's all for headlines when when these two teams play against each other uh, coming up. And with that said, let's swing on over. And S, that question tab, what the F is going on with the Twins and their moves? I think it's a great segue from the Yankees into the Twins. Take it away, brother. Where yeah, do you want to start? Oh, so let, let, we talk about winning and losing the deadline and how if you're a seller, it takes some time to really dive in and digest what exactly is going on here. Last year at the deadline... Well, let's let's go back even before last season. A lot of people thought the Twins were the team that were going to push the White Sox in the Central Division. And they imploded as hard as any team in baseball. Maybe the most disappointing team in the game last year. So what do they do at the deadline? They trade their ace, Jose Barrios, to Toronto for young young pieces. They move Nelson Cruz to Tampa for young pieces. It appears on the surface that the Minnesota Twins are trying to begin or at least accelerate some level of rebuild. Alex Kirilov is a great young outfielder. He's going to help them. But they were looking at, okay, Byron Buxton might leave at the end of the year as a free agent. Do we want to bring him back because of his health? You know, What do we do here? And it looks like they're starting to sell. At the deadline, if you were labeling buyers and sellers, the Twins, like the Cubs, were labeled a seller. And when you sell to the level that they did, it to many people on the surface says, rebuild is coming. And uh, then they get into the offseason this year and, you know, they, they go for it again. Um, they bring in, you know, Sonny Gray, who failed miserably with the Yankees, but he's been a really good pitcher in Oakland and Cincinnati. And they traded their 2021 first-round draft pick for Sonny Gray. So you bring in a high draft pick for Barrios and you're thinking, okay, we're rebuilding. You take a pitcher that a lot of people love in the first round last year, and then you trade him for Sonny Gray, which immediately makes you say, what are we doing right now? 
Then they trade their catcher, Mitch Garber, who's got a ton of pop, to Texas for Isaiah Kiner-Falifa to theoretically replace on paper at the time. You think, okay, he's going to replace Andrelton Simmons. Great get, right? you got a guy that's going to hit the ball. He's going to move the ball. You love a lot of what's going on there. Cool. And then they flip around before the dust settles and flip IKF with Donaldson to the Yankees for Urschel and Sanchez. Okay, now we're kind of like, what the hell is going on here? You, you flip Garver for Sanchez behind the plate. I would say Garver is a better defensive catcher. Neither one of them is going to win a gold glove anytime soon. Uh, you flip Donaldson for Ursula, so you're giving up kind of a, a brash, um, big-talking, big-bomb-hitting third baseman for a guy that everyone loved in the Yankees clubhouse, but more of a defensive, contact-driven third baseman. So you're kind of like, okay, so it feels like you're rearranging the cards on the table, but the hand really hasn't changed. And then they go out and give Carlos Correa $103 million for three years with opt-outs every every winter. And you got to be like, okay, so they went and got maybe the best defensive shortstop in the game, big big ticket guy. And now you're looking at a rotation where you're sliding Sonny Gray in for Jose Barrios. I would argue comparable pitchers you break even from where you started last year. Uh, you're going to have Ursula at third instead of Donaldson, Sanchez instead of Garber behind the plate. Break-even proposition as far as I'm concerned. Um, they re-signed Byron Buxton to a really nice incentive-heavy deal. He got the bag. Great. I mean, look, there aren't many guys in baseball who change the dynamic of a team as much being on the field as Byron Buxton does. Their season went south when he got hurt again. And that's kind of been their MO for a few years. So you're looking at this and you're like, okay, so, so how does the Correa deal work? Um, their lineup is interesting. Like I said, they've got some young outfielders that people can be excited about. Now you look around the infield, you've got Miguel Sano, who's not going to win a gold glove anytime soon at first. Um, you know, you've got Urschel at third, you've got Correa at short, the left side of their infield is going to be really good defensively. Um, but you look at their lineup and you look around that division and I don't like their pitching staff as much as I like the White Sox pitching staff right now. I don't like their lineup top to bottom, even with Correa, as much as I like the White Sox lineup right now. So are they still fighting for second place? You talk about, We talked about the pitching in Cleveland. The Guardians have a great pitching staff. Their lineup leaves a lot to be desired, but they're going to make things interesting because they always do. And then you look up into Detroit, and I could very easily see a reality here where we're talking in October, Paul, and the Tigers are in second place in the Central Division and not the Twins. They bring in Rodriguez in. It was a 20-game winner a couple years ago with the Red Sox, and they've got young pitching for days. Casey Mize, Matt Manning, a lot of guys that they expect to step up and be you know, front-line caliber guys. Big hype prospects. So Rodriguez kind of gives them a settling force at the top of the rotation. Then they bring in Javier Baez, right? They've already got like Akil Badu, who's a really good player. They've got uh, you know some other guys that are really talented, do some really nice things. But they're going to bring Riley Green up, who's a top 10 prospect in baseball to play in the outfield. They're going to bring up Spencer Torkelson, who's by most people's estimation a top three prospect in baseball, who – 
Miguel Cabrera has already said, I'll play, I'll be a DH every day if it gets this kid's bat in the lineup. He hits absolute missiles. And now that with the CBA, one of the things that they changed says if you're finished top two for rookie of the year, you get a full year of service time, whether you come up on the 4th of July or you come up for opening day, which incents teams like the Tigers to say, if we're a better team, having Torkelson and Riley in the lineup for our opener, then we are waiting a couple weeks to maybe sort things out and lie to ourselves that we get an extra year of service time. If they end up 1-2 for rookie of the year, they're both burning a service year anyway, so why don't we go for it? And those two guys could potentially be lineup changers for the Detroit Tigers. And if those two guys do at the major league level what they've done at the minor league levels, you could make a case that Detroit's lineup has more pop than Minnesota's does. And so you, you step back here and you say, you know what, the, the American League Central, I think, is fascinating. And I didn't bring up Kansas City yet. They've got young pitching for days. They brought Zach Granke back, who's, again, going to be a guy who is a mad scientist at pitch creation and pitch maneuvering. And he's going to talk some of these young guys into developing their pitches at the major league level a lot better. He's basically a second pitching coach who can still get it done for, you know, 100, 150 innings a year. Uh, he's not the Cy Young winner that he was when they traded him to Milwaukee and started their championship build, but he's still a viable guy who's going to give them innings and, and help the development of their young arms. And Bobby Wood Jr. is another front runner for Rookie of the Year in the American League. And so you look at that division top to bottom, and I think the White Sox are the class of the division, but when you look at the rest of it, the Twins just made a lot of moves and spent a lot of money, and I don't know that they necessarily did enough to jump the White Sox and become the best team in that division. And Correa's three-year deal, again, with opt-outs, changing his number to four, I think one of the best lines I've heard from an agent in a while was they introduced Correa earlier this morning up in Minnesota. He's wearing the number four now for the Twins. And Scott Boris was there, and he said the Twins have added a new uh, explosive piece to their lineup, C4. <laughs> kind of like that. I think C4 shirts are going to fly off the shelves up in Minnesota. I like it too, man. That's good but, stuff. But, 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 but I look at it, and it's like Correa's a game changer, but he's got health problems in the past. Urshel is not offensively what Donaldson was, but I would say he's an upgrade defensively. Sanchez is still an enigma. Correa's a, a big ad, but Gray is basically what Barrios was. So you trade Barrios instead of extending him and having a homegrown ace for young pieces, and then you trade young pieces to get the same guy. It just it, it feels like they're just, again, they're moving the same cards around the table, but nothing has really changed, and it's going to be interesting to see how that works uh, because Nelson Cruz was such a leader up there with him now being gone and being in Washington with the Nationals, which we didn't even talk about them in the East. Um, but I just I don't know what Minnesota's doing. And the end game, obviously, their goal is to win and win big and win quickly because you don't give a guy like Correa three years to make it take two for your other guys to show up. But I'm just I, I'm not here buying Minnesota as a championship contender based on what they have right now. And I'll be very interested to see how that plays out because they made a lot of changes. I mean, look, half of their lineup's going to be different. Their rotation's going to be different. How does it work? Does it work? Or are they a team like the White Sox were a number of years ago when they do the Shields deal and they bring in Adam Eaton and you're looking like, wow, they won the offseason and then it doesn't work and they end up selling quickly after that. 
It, there's a so many variables in Minnesota. I, I I put a firm what the f on Minnesota's <laughs> off season because I don't I don't get it. I don't I, I really don't get it. If if the Garber for IKF deal was all they did, I would have gotten it, right? But Sanchez is maybe not the best catcher in the room there, and you've got an Alpha and Correa who again has a history of not playing 150 games, 140 games. And so you just, you, you wonder a little bit. And Royce Lewis is one of their top prospects who's dealt with some injury stuff the last few years. Correa's three-year deal certainly doesn't block him forever, but it's a pretty expensive roadblock for him. And you wonder like how and where does he fit? And does, does he end up being a second base piece for him? Well, what's, what's the mix there? And what are we talking about with the prospects that they brought in? Because Austin Martin the guy that they got from Toronto in the Barrios deal, again, is kind of a middle infield type guy. So you wonder, what what exactly are the Twins doing? I don't get it. I'm not buying it as them being a, a team that's going to win the American League Central or the American League at all. But is it enough, again, with an extra playoff spot that you at least have some intrigue that they've got a team that can get in the playoffs? And then, again, anything can happen unless, of course, they play the Yankees and lose again. Well, I mean, there's nothing wrong with having some intrigue based around your team. I think you never know. Um, Ursula and Sanchez might actually bode well in a in a you know midwestern uh, you know in Minnesota there. You know, out out of the bright lights in the big city of New York. You never know; they might be able to settle in uh, out there. And and you know, Korea. As far as him coming from Atlanta, there, who knows? It, it might all work out. It's got to play out. But I, I guess more than anything, it's not dull in Minnesota, and it'll be something for everybody to kind of to watch on. I, I know what you, I, I know exactly where you're coming from with all the things that they did here and and trying to make sense of it. And they definitely are probably the standout team, uh, you know, throughout the CBA and, and um, after the CBA here and, and, and all the deals and the signings and the trades that were made. But you never know. Sometimes a um, a change of scenery for a couple of these guys might help them out. But we just gotta, you know. Wait and see what happens, you know. But and yeah, that's why they play the games. But yeah, and with an extra playoff spot, I get it. Again, you go you get in, and you can be interesting. And but the Twins will be a team between now and the trade deadline. If they get off to as bad a start as they did last year, does Korea opt out after one and go get another payday somewhere else? Um, do they look to move Sanchez and or Ursula and or Gray? and or anyone else on the roster that isn't young and use some of these veteran pieces to, again, potentially augment a theoretical retool versus rebuild. You but might know that after 20 games. <laughs> you, you, you might. And you know what? Here, here's, uh, here's the other thing that you got to keep in mind is um, they, uh, they, they are a team that has – um, in an outdoor stadium and it's going to be cold up there in April and with Correa having back issues, it's not a dome in Houston anymore. And so you're right. Like they need to get off to a good start to keep things interesting. And I, I wonder a little bit about the cold weather outdoors for Correa and if that's going to help or hurt him because it ain't himself in his money tab. <laughs> have, have a nice $105 million bonfire. Maybe. He can make a sweater out of Benjamin's, brother. <laughs> He'll be all right. I'll tell you what, man. 
Uh, it Look, it's going to be interesting to see. Like I said, they got to play the games, and um, it's interesting stuff, and th- this is all speculation, but it's 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 great to talk about because, you know, uh, where where these teams are going to weave in and out of, uh, especially this division here, uh, the AL Central here, and, and, you know, talk about your White Sox. But um, are, you, are you ready to, to shift over to the big money guys? Let's spend it. Let's because it I'm telling you it. right now, buddy, I want to fire this up. The team I like out of Central, baby, is the Detroit Tigers. I got a soft spot, baby. I grew up with Sparky Anderson there, the old Tiger Stadium. And now I know, I know one of your faves and your son's faves is going to be suiting up and hitting balls out of the new park. That's Javier Baez, baby. Let's talk about these big money shortstops, baby. As Tab likes to call it, super money, baby. And that's what we'll uh, head to now. Unbelievable, Tab. Take it away. Lots of money here. Lots of big guys. And it, this is not a dull subject right here as far as shortstops in Major League Baseball. Well, and, and this is the crazy thing. You look at the money that was doled out, and we talked about it at the beginning of last year. This was billed as the the best free agent class at a position I submitted last year, and we'll still argue, at a single position, the best free agent class in the history of, of the sport. And... Now that the dust is pretty much settled on, you know, if we go back to including the trade and 10-year extension for Francisco Lindor, six guys who got a lot of money. And you look at the immediate thought process and the, the, the gut reaction to where these guys went. And I'll be blunt, Paul. One of them makes immediate sense to me. Um, of the five guys that signed this winter, three of them uh, are at least interesting. But so let's let's dig in. We already talked a little bit about Detroit. They brought in Javi Baez, uh, my guy, six years, one hundred and forty million. He's going to be their shortstop every day. He's going to hit in the middle of their lineup every day. You're going to have Torkelson and Riley possibly joining him. I love their lineup up there. He makes them better defensively at short. Uh, he gives them someone to sell tickets. The sex appeals there. There's no question Javi Baez is one of the most watchable players in baseball. He can also be one of the most frustrating players in baseball, but I think 6-140 and 140 says that Detroit's committed to going for it sooner than later. They tore it down, and they drafted well, and it looks like they've developed to a point now where they're going to have a rotation that is behind Eduardo Rodriguez, stocked with guys that are largely homegrown. You're going to look around Baez in the lineup with Miguel Cabrera, and you're going to have a lot of young guys coming in that are homegrown. And I think they said, you know, 22 is still going to be a growth year, but we're signing Baez for six because 23 we expect it to be go time. Yeah. So that, that deal to me immediately made sense. Um, we talked a little bit about the Correa to Minnesota. He got three and 105 um, with the expanded playoffs. Minnesota needed to do something bold and brash. They're chasing the White Sox still. You saw what Detroit did and what the expectations are in Detroit. So they needed to do something to match that. So Correa to Minnesota, I'll at least say that that's intriguing. Massive upgrade from what they had last year, no question. But again, we just spent some time talking about the mix-up there. I don't know if it's enough but at least that's an intriguing play. 
on a shorter-term, bigger AAV with opt-outs deal for Correa. The other one that interesting uh, was Corey Seager going to the Texas Rangers. He got 10 years and $325 million. So he almost got what Lindor did. He leaves the Dodgers where he was a World Series hero, where he was born and raised as a baseball player, and he gets the bag in Texas. Texas is not a pitching staff that's going to strike fear in anybody right now, but they've got young pitchers like Jack Leiter coming that are interesting. Okay, But in a division where you've got Mike Trout, Anthony Rendon, Shohei Otani in Anaheim slash Los Angeles slash the greater Southern California area, when you've got uh, the Astros are still formidable with Bregman and Altuve, even though Correa left, they're still the alpha in that room and they're getting Verlander back. So the 10-year the commitment to Corey Seager says, again, we want you to be the rock that we build around. So we're going to give you 10 years because it might not be 22, but 23, maybe 23, but certainly start in 24 when the young pitching gets here. We want to be going for it. So we're going to commit to you long enough that you're going to be a stabilizing force going forward. Then Texas gives 7 and 175 to Marcus Simeon which is the second most years and the second most gross money handed out to a shortstop in the offseason. And he's going to play second base for him like he did in Toronto. So you're looking at a $500 million, a half billion dollar middle infield in Texas. $500 million for second base and, and shortstop for a team that around them has a ton of question marks and is not there now. But the, the, that's if you look at the Simeon deal, seven-year window, they're looking at years, realistically, three to seven being their window. So they went out and got guys that they thought will sell tickets, make them interesting, and make them a little bit more competitive in years one, two, and maybe three. And then year four, when the reinforcements come around them and the pitching staff hits puberty and gets to the major league level, we're a team to, to be reckoned with. We expected Texas to spend money. I thought that they'd go out and get a A-level shortstop. The fact that they signed two of them for as much money as they did, and one of them's going to play a second base was fascinating. So the fact that they did both and gave so much money to both was really, really fascinating to me. And then earlier this week, you find out Trevor Story's going to Boston for six years and $140 million. And then you start unpeeling the apple there, and you're like, okay, so... It's a lot of cabbage. No, it's a a fat contract, but then you're like, okay, well, hold on. Xander Bogarts is your shortstop. Rafael Devers is your third baseman. Neither one of them is going to win a gold glove anytime soon. Both of them have contractual conversations that need to be had at some point in the not-too-distant future. Are they going to move Bogarts to third and put Story at short where he's been in Colorado his entire career? possible would that move divers over to first base well they've got a couple young players like bobby Dahlbeck playing first base it would be hard to imagine that you're going to just strictly dh a kid when he might be better defensively than divers moving across the diamond so what does this all look like now you come to find out story's going to at least start at looking at largely playing second base again so two of your five big ticket shortstops are going to play second base where they landed and I just I, the the story deal. There have been some concerns about his arm, um, which is probably why second base was at least an idea for him. I think the 140 million he got the same contract Baez did. That I think was his goal. 
the six years in Boston gives the Red Sox some protection so that if they do at some point ultimately want to move on from uh, Bogarts, he can go back to shortstop. If they need to move on from Devers and move Bogarts to third, they can do that. But the six years protects the Red Sox, so I get it. But if you take those five guys and again, and you look at what could have been the 2021-22 winner free agent market, and we put Francisco Lindor's 10 years and 341 from the Mets in there, you're looking at six shortstops getting gross 1.3 roughly billion with a B dollars for middle infielders. And we that that's just from guys that were supposed to be free agents. That's not even including the money that the Padres gave Fernando Tatis Jr. Yeah. And it is it shows you what teams value. And when you look at the way that teams have traded, we talked about the Cubs last year. They trade you Darvish for a couple middle infield prospects. They trade Craig Kimbrell to the White Sox, and they get Madrigal in that deal. They trade Rizzo. They trade Baez. The Cubs have got like 13 shortstop prospects. They use their first-round pick in 20 on Ed Howard, who's a shortstop. They signed the number one international free agent prospect, Christian Hernandez, who's a shortstop. Everybody needs a shortstop. And if you're a great athlete and you can play shortstop, most people think, okay, well, if we've got too many shortstops, one of you can move to center field. One of you can move to a corner infield or a corner outfield spot. One of you can move to second base. But shortstop has become a premium in the way that you saw the money go this offseason. Clearly, Major League Baseball front offices say we have to start spending our money at shortstop. And historically, you've looked at corner outfielders, corner infielders, starting pitching, being where the big money goes. First baseman used to get paid. You look at what Albert Pujols got to theoretically be a first baseman slash DH for the Angels. You look at what third basemen have got in the past. And you look at what, like the A-Rod deal, the move to third base with the Yankees, and what A-Rod got back in the day. You're looking at, again, $1.3 billion in about a 12, 13-month window being spent on middle infielders. The game has changed, and shortstop is now the premium position in baseball. And you look at the money that these guys got and you start thinking about what, you know, and again, Wander Franco got a $100 million extension that raised everyone's eyebrows in Tampa. They actually paid a guy. Well, he's a he's a franchise-altering talent, so you get that. Uh, but you look at what guys like a Bo Bichette's going to get at some point. You look at what Bogarts is going to get when he actually gets to go out and test the waters. There's going to be a lot more money spent in the future on shortstops, but this was the deepest class we'd ever seen at a position, and the money backed it up. And go, again, inc- including Lindor, you've got about a $1.3 billion commitment to six middle infielders. I would qualify them all as shortstops by trade, but Story and Simeon are going to get a little second base action based on where they signed. But $1.3 billion to middle infielders is mind-numbing, and owners crying poor can legitimately go play in traffic because – you don't spend $1.3 billion on six guys if you're flat-ass broke. Little League moms and dads, uh, pay attention to this. Uh, get your kids out there and work them at the shortstop. Just, I want to look real quick, Corey Seager's contract here real quick, everybody. Um, the 10-year deal for uh, $325 million. Uh, 
He's going to receive five million signing bonus, or he he got the five million signing bonus, and then at the end of the twenty two, uh, his it's going to be a thirty two point five million dollars salary, right? Seeger's then going to make thirty five million in twenty twenty three. He's going to make thirty four point five million in twenty twenty four, and then thirty two million in twenty twenty five before settling in. Tab. Settling in at thirty-one million annually from twenty twenty-six to twenty thirty-one as part of the front. It's a front-loaded pack deal here, um, and the the Seager deal is on a whole nother level compared to everybody else's because the three hundred twenty-five million will guarantee um, will tie, I should say, Giancarlo Stanton's uh, November twenty fourteen extension for sixth highest sum, sixth highest sum in Major League history. And Stanton's was distributed over 13-year term. Their 32.5 million average annual value checks in at 11th all-time in Major League Baseball. And that's from uh, Anthony Franco there from uh, Major League Trade Rumors. So get your boys and girls out there to play shortstop, man. Woo! Yeah, that's where the money's at. And, again, like the, the story to Boston thing, Boston had to answer because of what the Blue Jays and Yankees did. Um, Detroit is building something. They look at what the White Sox have, and they know what they have, and they feel like they can be the next wave in that division. Um, Minnesota's trying to keep up with Detroit. So these three of those moves were direct counters to what other teams either have or are doing. And Texas is just trying to get back into the conversation. They got a new stadium. They want butts and seats. And so they committed $500 million to Seager and Simeon as the future faces both now and for at least seven years with Simeon going forward. So uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, parents out there who have kids that are getting ready to get their uniforms and gloves and start getting dirty on the diamonds, tell them to play shortstop. <laughs> Work, get those ground balls uh, worked out uh, because there is money to be had if you can be the six on the position uh, readout for your team on a daily basis. Rush used to sing. Big money goes around the world, especially here in Major League Baseball. Well, here we go, folks. LDR's back. Season 2, Episode 1. There's so much more to talk about. We're just getting started. We're excited to be back. Excited for MLB to be back. Um, we're so excited to be uh, to talking to you guys again. And, and just we really appreciate you guys hanging in there with us during the break here. But baseball's back. Me and Tab are back. It's going to be so much fun. We'll, we'll bring some new stuff to the show here this year as well. We're excited about that. We got some some ideas um, that we're cranking around here. But um, really, really looking forward to doing this with you again, Tab. We're excited. Spring is in the air. It's a little chilly out there. Hopefully, no more snow. But wherever it, where it is by you guys, I hope you guys are all safe and healthy. And looking forward to the summer and the boys of summer and baseball coming back here for the 2022 MLB season. It's going to be exciting, Tab. So before we uh, put the locks on the... Uh, I guess the spring training ballpark here we got here today. and Turn the sprinklers on and turn off the lights in the concession stands there, Tab. Please, tell the fans a goodbye for today's episode. Uh, as I say every Line Drive Radio episode, folks, get a glove, get a ball, go out, throw with the son and daughter. Uh, get out there, play the game, because playing the game is the best part of baseball. And get ready for a really fun and fascinating Major League season, because it's about to get crazy. It sure is. Like crazy shortstop money. Get those kids between the bases and start throwing them grand balls. All right, folks. Enjoy your week. LD will be back real soon. Thank you so much. Keep listening and follow me and Tab everywhere at Line Drive Radio. And we're hanging out on the Twitter. You get all personal accounts there as well. All right? 
And tell your friends, Line Drive Radio is back. All right, play ball! Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.